Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone, from a powerless San Francisco. Thank goodness for laptops and self-powered laptops. It's June 1st, 2023. Of course, uh, power cuts are one thing. Living through wars are quite another, especially the Second World War. What do Second World War, what does the Second World War mean to novelists? Um, I think there's a degree of disagreement. We had uh, one novelist on the show last September, Kristen Beck, who believed that World War II remains seductive for novelists uh, because it's a simple war between good and evil, and it allowed them to juxtapose good and evil. I'm not sure that my guest today, uh, and, and Kristen Beck wrote a wonderful book, The Winter Orphans, around that. It's, of course, true and legitimate in some contexts. But I'm not sure that my guest today, Andrew Krivak, uh, Krivak uh, who has a new book out, uh, third in a trilogy, like The Appearance of Horses. I'm not sure if it's a trilogy, certainly uh, a book with characters from two previous books. In a sense, it's a book about the Second World War, and in a sense, it's a book about all wars. But it's certainly not a book uh, which, um, as uh, Kristen Beck suggests, uh, makes war into writing about good and evil, or at least that's my sense. Andrew is joining us from his home in Somerville in Massachusetts. Andrew, is that fair? I don't want to put words into your mouth, and I'm sure you won't let me. You're too sophisticated a writer for that. Um, are you attracted to wars in particular? I mean, you've, this is the third in, as I said, a series. The first book was The Sojourn about World War I, uh, second, The Signal Flame about Vietnam. Um, always about war, but always about the moral complexity of war. Is that fair? Yeah, yes, Andrew. Thanks. And first of all, thanks for having me on. This is really um, um, quite a treat. Moral complexity, I think, is is spot on. And l let me say just personally, my um, my two grandfathers, my father's father, fought in World War One for the Americans, 1917 to 1918. He's with the Ninth Field Artillery in France. My mother's father fought with the Austrians. Um, in the Landwehr as a Slovak con conscript. And so um, I heard about these stories from my grandmothers. My grandfathers had passed away when I was a boy. And I know that my father was in World War II. He was in the South Pacific and all of his brothers, his oldest brother was a CB in the South Pacific. His middle brother was a, a radio operator in Burma. And my father was um, in the Solomon Islands on the way to the invasion of Japan. Um, so that was World War I. That was World War II for me. And then my brothers were ready to go to getting ready to go to Vietnam. There's a big stretch about uh, 13 years, I think, between the the two side uh, the brothers and the family. Um, and um, I just thought, you know, you as a, as a young boy, you become a young man and you fight your war in America and you get on with it if you if you you know came back. But World War II specifically, I, you know, I think I this notion of moral complexity really goes back to the sojourn and my understanding of World War One. Um, and so it was quite natural since Bechette Connor and Joseph Vinich are really, um, what's the word? They, you know, Joseph Vinich certainly comes of age in World War I and Bechette Connor is born in the aftermath of World War I. I wanted World War II to mirror that as well. So the, uh, the passages in like the appearance of horses uh, where Bechette Connor is fighting in the Hurricane Forest and then lost in the Ardennes um, is, 
I, I tried to do that with respect to, I would say, more complexity and moral ambiguity. What is right and, and what's not right? I, I don't know that in, that in the face of that war, if I were my grandfather's, my father's, or anyone who, who was in Vietnam, I don't know that I could answer that. So, Another book that comes to mind, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Alexander Heeman's new book, um, mm. The World and All That, that It Holds. It's a World War I book, but it's a, also a book about storytelling. Your book is about storytelling, the nature of stories, their eternal return, uh, a narrative that never ends. Talk to me a little bit about that and what you learned from your grandmother about storytelling. Right. I, you know, it all begins with storytelling for me um, and from my grandmother. First of all, you know, she lived up the street. This from is my, your Slovakian grandmother. No, actually, this is my my mother's grandmother, um, Elizabeth Magda. So she she was born in Colorado. Uh, her father, Andrew, after whom I'm named, uh, he his wife and their young baby boy, my great uncle Joe, we're on a trestle in over the Arkansas River. That's the opening of the sojourn. It's a true story. She was walking along the trestle with a five-year-old nephew and um, with her son in her arms. Uh, the nephew got his foot caught in the tr in the rails as the um, train was coming by, and she couldn't do anything to get him out. So she threw her son over over the trellis into the water, over the trestle into the water. And some boys who were swimming. Roy Palmer was the boy who was swimming that day with his buddies. They uh, swam out and rescued the baby, and my my great grandfather brought his three daughters and his young baby son back to um, Austria. What was Austria Hungary at the time? So she, uh, so she lived as a widow up the street from us in Pennsylvania, back uh, dead end dirt road. And we just went up there with my mom and, you know, my mother would take care of her, take her to pay the light bill in town. And we just heard stories all the time about the old country. She didn't necessarily like it very much. You know, she grew up, with the proverbial wicked stepmother um, and just had a rough time of it. So when she wanted to go to America, she was 16. She went to her father and she said, you know, essentially, dad, I, I want to go to America. This is after the war. And he said, I knew you'd ask me that. Um, he had all her papers. She was an American citizen because she was born in, in America. So stories where it all started. And then as I got older, I was able to start asking my dad about the stories about World War II. And he was reticent. Um, but, you know, he, he talked a lot about the South Pacific. Um, he was a chemist who was uh, trained in a mortar division. He missed going to Guadalcanal by a company um, and didn't go well for the company that did go. So I think he didn't talk of it much because he had this, you know, I don't know what to call it now, perhaps this humbled respect of fate. And um, he had what he had because one day. He As you write about all these different wars, American wars, not just American wars, in like the appearance of horses, the First World War, the Second World War, Vietnam. Are you trying as a novelist to distinguish them or to treat war as the same as this tr tragically morally ambiguous thing that causes so much suffering? Wow, that's a really good question. I, I'm never, never one for the either or. I always think in terms of the both and. However, I wouldn't want to say, I don't I don't really say history repeats itself on a grand scale. So can I say it's there's both reflections and similarities and differentiations, and I think that um, that's part of the complexity. You, uh, Andrew, you can say whatever you like. You're the authority. <laughs> when it comes to war, again, we, we know from our headlines today we had a, 
a distinguished British historian, Richard Overy, written one of the great books on the Second World War. And I asked him when he came on the show last year whether the Second World War had ended yet, and he doesn't I think, think it has. And it seems from news reports in Ukraine that in some ways what's happening there now is the afterlife of the Second World War. When you look at your headlines today, when you, I mean, you're not a political analyst, of course, but are you writing this book and your series of books about war as, in a sense, a warning about fetishizing war and glory and reminding people that the stories of wars never really end. And, you know, we can say, well, it all began in the First World War. And then before the First World War, you could go back to Napoleon. And I'm sure before Napoleon, there were many other wars, too. Hmm. Well, f first, I, I think I just set out um, as a kind of um, homage to my to my grandmother, really, my my parents, you know, just to stories are what they gave me. And so stories was what I wanted to make um, is as a, you know, as a craftsperson in the world. Um, but I do ultimately, you know, as I do uh, write more and think more deeply about these things, I, I you know, very much a, um, I mean, what's happening in Ukraine, I just every day I have to hold back the tears, you know, because these are my people. My father was an ethnic Ruthenian and Ruthenian, the old, the ethnic Rus were that, that place that disappeared essentially after World War I between what is now the border of Ukraine and Slovakia. Um, they're entirely different, uh, a similar Slavic culture, their own language, even their own school of iconography. Um, so, so that just really saddens me. Um, but I, I, I think that I think my father, my grandparents, and if my grandfathers were alive as well, they, they would say, you know, just uh, be careful. Um, and uh, I think they tell those, they told those stories as a way of, of um, passing along that, that um, caution, if you will. Yes, I, I, I agree with you on that, Andrew. World War One and Two, of course, are global wars in every sense. Vietnam is a uniquely American war. Does that make it more or less challenging for you as a fiction writer very much so yeah um and uh when i started this sojourn i imagined this much bigger novel about um a generation of families at war and um so in many ways it's it's this is a trilogy that each of one each one of the books is standalone but i really did imagine a much bigger book and as i started to pare it down um, the sojourn became that um, the speaking of Joseph Vinich in a, uh, in many ways, I, I imagined uh, Marlowe on the, on the uh, stern there of the, of the all Nelly from heart of darkness, telling, telling uh, the guys on the boat, the story I had um, uh, Bo Connor in there. And then I, and I had Sam Connor and I realized it was just Bo. And I was wondering why was Bo there and um, alone. And I, I imagined Sam being away in Vietnam and then it just didn't matter who was listening. We all listened to the story in that first person point of view. And so the surgeon became a sort of performative um, act of Joseph Finich telling about World War I, his own coming of age, um, as a way of saying, this is, this is the way wars shape us and has shaped me. Um, so, we'll, but Vietnam, Vietnam emerged in that way. I know, I know it from uh, thinking about my brothers. My brother didn't go, by the way. He just, the draft stopped months before he was ready to. Um, he, and then he entered the Coast Guard. So, um, but yes, I'm aware of that. I, I'll tell you this, Andrew, though. Um, as, I, as I sit in front of my keyboard and think about, okay, so I've, I've not been in combat. What do I do? 
I wrote the sojourn entirely at the distance of World War One. Um, you know, thinking about my grandmother, doing a great deal of research at the War Museum in, in London, and um, and let it and and what's the word? I, I I wanted to channel my grandfather. It's it's fiction, but there was a voice I needed to grab onto, and it was his. Uh, my first reading, a gentleman in the first row stood up and he said, I was an army ranger scout in Vietnam, and I wanted to know how you got it right. <laughs> I thought, wow, I was expecting the opposite. Um, and I don't know if you know from my biography, but I was eight, um, eight years studying with the Jesuits as it to uh, be ordained a priest, but left in theology studies and, you know, left happily and without, you know, just because it wasn't the life for me. But I told him, I said, listen, I, I have not been in war but I know what it is to be a man in formation. And so I, that is what I try to, to hold on to as a writer of these wars and then make sure I do my research. Uh, Andrew, when I think of uh, the little man in war, I think of uh, the Czech hero, uh, Shvek. Is, is there an element of that in your book? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've certainly read Shvek. Uh, I think uh, the little man challenging, making fun of authority per persistently, perpetually, standing up to the state. Yes, yeah, certainly, um, uh, Captain Prosh in at um, in World War in the at Fort Sherrill in the Sojourn is is sort of shake like. He's a little bit wants to be a little bit bigger than he actually is. Uh, there really was a uh, Captain Prosh. Really was the commander of Fort Sherrill. You can go see the plaques up there. Apparently, he's a really great guy. But yes, I, I think I was trying to get that, that sense of um, uh, being a little bit too big for um, people being too big for, for who they are, what they want to do. But, you know, sh I, I like that shake is in the background. I, I will say that I wasn't actively thinking about um, the good soldier in my, in my writing. So uh, people, of course, associate Schweik with Czechoslovakia, but of course, he was Czech and the Slovaks and the Czechs have since split. Mm -hmm. uh, you are very much in the tradition of, of, of Slovakian writing and culture, which you put into your books. Um, are there particular Slovakian writers who have influenced you, who you consider your writing in some sort of tradition? Of? Yeah, not not really. I think I'm entirely American. Um, I, I, you know, I, I lived in Bratislava for a time um, as a Jesuit. I studied Slovak. I listened to Slovak my entire life, uh, and it turns out it was a an Eastern dialect called Shadish that my grandmother spoke and my, both my parents spoke to each other. Uh, so it was their secret language. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I read some of the poetry of Milan Rufus, who's a, a contemporary S Slovak poet, but no, I, it's, um, I'm respectful of the fact that I don't, um, the language is in my ear, but the literature is, um, is not part of my, capacity to um you know to, to think about so there's not much of it actually i mean there's not a lot of and that, and that central european world is so complicated and interesting we did a show uh in march of this year with patty mccracken i'm not sure if you're familiar with her new book not angel makers it was about a mass killing in hungary after the first world war women who turned on the men and poisoned them uh, uh i think almost uh, 80 men were poisoned in a village near budapest um mm. In, in gendered terms, this was a much more traditional word. You're very influenced by your grandmother and her storytelling. Is there an element of that in the book, if not a feminism of certainly addressing the issue of women and women's rights? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. The, like the Prince of Horses begins with uh, a young Hannah Connor, Joseph, Joseph Vinich's um, daughter, Hannah Vinich at the time, and then finishes with, with Hannah Connor as a much older woman. And I, so I, I mean, my, my grandmother, my mother worked as well, but she, when we were at that age where we needed a parent, she stepped out of, she was a, a medical technologist, a histologist in a hospital lab. She stepped out of work and, and raised us until we got into high school. And then my father said to us, all right, it's time. You guys have to cook and clean and your mother's going back to work. If you want to go to college, this is what she's got to do. And so, you know, we all stepped in and did what we had to do. So I, I've, I think that's always been a part of, of um, just the way I think about the world and the women in my family, especially in the Eastern European tradition, which was strong. They were strong women. Um, I, I, can I tell you uh, about the woman in, um, in like the appearance of horses? It's uh, Francis Posel. Uh, it's a true story that my, my mother and father didn't actually know about this. I didn't know about it either. I'd been back to the village where my grandmother grew up uh, several times. And I took my mother and father in there um, probably a few, a decade before they passed away. My mother's great aunt. So her father's sister uh, was a, a spinster her whole life, a uh, seamstress in Wilkes-Barre, lived in a small flat that always smelled of mothballs and, and um, rye whiskey, although, you know, she never drank actually. But um, um, the, uh, she would go away to Czechoslovakia behind the Iron Curtain and my mother would always ask my grandmother, you know, why, why, won't you, why don't you want to go with her? And my grandmother would say, I don't want anything to do with that place. And Aunt Sue would go and she'd come back and she'd go for long stretches of time and she'd come back. And when we visited uh, Vitsaj, this village, in the back of the church, uh, St. Joseph the Worker, there's a plaque by the baptismal font that uh, essentially says, in memory of Susan Stefilla, whose tireless efforts to maintain the church under the Iron Curtain will not be forgotten. She was bringing money to the priest the whole time in her little carpet bag. Um, she was a very uh, tiny woman. She had been kicked by a mule as a child, so she had her jaw misshapen in a veterinarian, had to reset it. So it was odd and she had trouble speaking and she never talked much because I think it was really painful, but she was the person I, I um, <clears throat> modeled Francis Posel after because I needed to have somebody over there who started going right after the second world war. And there she was probably one of the most fearless women um, in my whole family. And nobody would have known that if we hadn't gone over to the village. Perhaps that, You've inherited an element of that fearlessness, Andrew, in terms of your writing, which seems uncompromisingly pure. Um, there's not a lot of compromise in your work. Is that fair? You, you don't make it... Your work isn't difficult, but you don't make it easy. You don't want to make it easy for the reader. You want to bring them into your complicated, rich, tapestried world. Is that fair? I mean, isn't that the way of it? I, I, you know, got more time behind me than ahead. And I just, I just think about how complicated life is, even, you know, family and vocation and jobs and everything. I mean, I think that's really, um, that's what language ought to do. And it's certainly what the, in my estimation, the written language ought to do. Not, not stultifyingly difficult, but it really ought to get at the depths of the possibility of what can be known and understood. So yes, that's what I try for. What would you say to some aspiring writers or perhaps some established writers who say that we need to compromise, that it's hard being a book writer, especially a fiction writer, 
yeah sell one's books to get access to do interviews like this you need to simplify and that we need to compromise and perhaps commercialize well it's, I, I think there's no um there's no uh, good end to purposeful obscurity i i don't i don't go for that i do think though that um um you know i if it's there, if the answer is there, if, you know, if you just read, if you read it, it's there. <laughs> so I, I don't believe in purposeful obscurity that difficult is somehow better. I, I don't subscribe to that, but I think, you know, different styles are, are acceptable. I'm, I'm reading Percival Everett's The Trees right now. And wow, it is an amazing novel. I just love it. A completely different style. Very, very clean and just straight ahead almost, uh, you know. Um, yeah. So, but I, you know, the market is difficult. I'm certainly not a best-selling writer. I have a probably a small fan base who likes my books. Um, and do I wish well, more? Not so small. You've, uh, you know, Lit Hub are big fans of your sure. work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah but you I, have I, readership. But you seem to represent the old world of, um, uh, I wouldn't call it middle-class or middle-range writers, but you're not a bestseller, and at the same time, uh, you're a quality writer, and that world is, seems to be disappearing in some ways in publishing. Yeah. Um, I, I don't... Yeah, I'll tell you, I don't know how to answer that because I do think it's there. I, I reach for those writers. Um, uh, I hope it doesn't disappear. Um, it's not going to disappear with me. I'm going to keep doing what I do. Uh, and actually, I really like being in this position because I do get to write what I want to write. Um, I get to write. Yeah, I can tell that. You, you, yeah. you choose. You noted, uh, I saw an interview with you where you, you imagine your novel as a series of stories that can be dipped in and out of. And in that sense, I think uh, Alexander Heman comes to mind, too. Yeah. Um, are all novels, in a way, uh, Andrew, a series of short stories strung along? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, perhaps I, I think the question of of the narrative line is is fascinating. With with uh, like the Prince of Horses, I started with just a chronological line, and it was it was complete, but it just wasn't very interesting to me. And I was thinking about the way in which my grandmother would tell stories. I think in that same interview, I mentioned that you know she, we would go up to the house with my mother, and she would sit down and pour some tea and tell us something that was on her mind. She's a woman who lived alone. And then the next day she'd come down for Sunday, Sunday lunch and she'd tell us something connected to what she told us the day before. And then, you know, a month later at some holiday feast, she would pull it all together with this grand story about a, a larger um, event in the family. And I thought, wow, you know, isn't that the way she, that stories unfold? And it's not because she was, you know, old and losing her mind. It's because that's the way the story unfold for, unfolded for her and the way it had to be told. So when I thought about that, um, I started to just move the, the chapters around. And so, for instance, the second, by the second chapter, plot spoiler here, you know that Beshet Connor will, is di um, di has died. And it's not until the, f uh, the next chapter that he gets to World War I. So, you, you know, you're reading it knowing that he's, he's going to come home from the war. Uh, but it just created a different type of, of revelation, if you will, of, of um, plot and um, appearances in, in, in a way that, the, the novel um, uh, takes from its title. So if that's the case, I do believe in the old Greek notion of the anagnoresis, the great revelation. So yeah, I think that's a fair point to think about novels as um, short stories moving along, um, narrative arcs within a larger narrative arc. 
2023 is, of course, the year of, for better or worse, of chat GPT, where mm. AI is becoming real. We've done a number of shows, including the Stephen Marsh, the Canadian writer, who believes that chat GPT will actually help creators. Certainly one of the good things about the chat GPT uh, story is that it's reminded everyone of our unique relationship with language. So a couple of final questions, Andrew. I'm curious as to your thoughts on chat GPT. I'm guessing you're probably not particularly excited by it. Uh, but secondly, what do your books tell us about the uniqueness of, of language and of uh, our invention as humans? The one thing that other species don't, at least to us, seem to be able to uh, replicate. Right. I, I, I'm not very excited about it. You're, <laughs> you're spot on. Um, to me... I'm curious why, because um, you think it's cheap? Yeah, not at all. I'll tell you what. I, I think it's, for me, it holds no interest because I don't think it understands uh, beauty in the way that a, a good writer understands the beauty of language in any language. Um, and, and if chat GBT can get to that point, then I will rethink my entire, um, um, sense of what AI can and can, uh, can or cannot do. I mean, it's not that I'm against technology. I just think that there's a place for the way in which, um, language is beautiful and that it's our job as writers to bring that beauty to the world in, in our, in a form, um, in a line, in a paragraph, in a chapter, I just, um, to me, that's, that's one of the great acts of love that you could do is to, is to um, show someone something beautiful in the world. And so that's, you know, that's what I'm trying to get at as a writer. Um, and actually thinking out loud again, given the nature of our conversation and the nature of your work, Andrew, language is, and, and your, the way you use language is a way of bringing everything and everyone to life. Um, yes, absolutely. You know, um, I have a, uh, pretty... it's beyond communication. It's not about just saying, well, I'd like this or that. Exactly. And, and to go back to your comment about, um, you know, writing, just being more clear and, and less, um, I don't know, less, less difficult for lack of a better word, just less, um, what's the word exacting. Um, I think that's, there's an element of that in there too, is that, um, the depth of the language um, has a purpose and a place and, um, uh, and a substance that we really um, uh, shouldn't just give up on. Uh, I'm, I, I don't want to. That's, my, that's why I'm holding my, my line here. Again, not a Luddite, just a lover of language. Um, so. You mentioned earlier that you, you, you had been a Jesuit or you'd studied uh, right, right. the church in, in Slovakia. Is this, in, a, in an odd way, your stab at eternity, this love <laughs> affair with language to make Andrew Krivak, and I, I don't mean this in any critical way, but to, to, um, to, to, to bring not just your grandparents and all those generations back to life eternally, but also yourself? Um, honestly, Andrew, I'll, I'll tell you that I had never thought about that because um, I... I don't know that books will be around much. If you've read my novel, The Bear, you'll see why. But um, no, I, I don't. I don't think about it from that perspective. My theology is completely different from that. I I, um, I, I believe that um, 
uh, we don't think enough about just existence and being like, even though if my material body dis you know, dissolves at death, um, somehow everything that's made me is still not going to, it doesn't, there's no, there's no nothing. There's no not being. It's still, I'm still, there's still material and I'm okay with that. You know, I'll just be part of this, this world. Um, in the stream of quantum mechanics, I suppose that's the case. But anyway, I don't really, um, I don't write to be eternal. I write because I love language and um, I want to see if I could make something beautiful in the world. Well, you certainly have done with like the appearance of horses. It's already been embraced by the literary press. It was starred by Kirkus Review. Uh, finally, finally, Andrew, is this the end? Is this the final I mean, final trilogy. Uh, could there be a fourth book? Are you going to bring well, all these characters back to life again? No, no Darden trilogy. No, I'm, I'm sorry. No Darden novel. No, but I'm, um, but I'm still working. It's what I do. Get up in the morning and hit the desk. So, yeah.